Well, tonight we are in, we're on turn four, and so I'm always looking up there at that picture, thinking of all the times in my life that I felt like that guy feels, standing there, knowing there's a road behind him that he's been walking down, comes to this junction, he can go left or right or straight ahead, and he's wondering, Lord, which way should I go? Which path should I take? And we're talking about discerning, uh, using wisdom to make decisions and discerning the will of God. And, and basically, what's happened up until this point is we've just been building a foundation. And starting next week, it's all very practical. Everything we've talked about has been very, very practical. But starting next week, uh, Pastor Matt will start leading us into the, the, the actual, you know, structure of of what we've been talking about tonight what we need to do is one last piece that I need to uh, fit into this foundation before we can move forward so this is just um, this is just solidifying our foundation of understanding so that we can really embark together on making wise decisions. So here's my question. My question, first of all, would be this. What kind of person do you need to be in order to make good decisions? And does that play into uh, this whole discussion about making decisions and being wise? And what needs to be a characteristic of you or I if we're going to be successful in decision-making, knowing full well that we're all going to be facing multitudes of decisions in all sorts of areas in our lives over and over and over. And along those lines, does God lead all people equally? Or all of His people equally? We all possess the same Holy Spirit. No person has more Holy Spirit than another person. We all have access to the same amount of Holy Spirit? But does He lead us all equally? No. Clearly not. You have, you have a, an entire you know, span, a spectrum of uh, decision making within the body of Christ. You have people who are genuinely saved people who make genuinely poor decisions on a regular basis. You have other people who are genuinely saved people who make genuinely wise decisions on a regular basis. Why is that? What's the difference? Well, I would submit to you that what we would need to think about as we think about who we are, who we need to be, how do we, how do we invoke the power of God and the wisdom of God into our lives to make decisions that honor God, we need to think first about this picture that the Bible paints of life called walking. So when the Bible talks about the Christian life, it is very often in the context of walking. Those that we walk with are the people that we do life with. As we're walking, we're doing life. And it's a very it's a very appropriate and wonderful way to think about uh, living life as a Christian. Now, let's just think for a moment about walking. Let's think about what, what that would, you know, what can we learn from truths about walking. I think there's three main things that would be appropriate for us to sort of ingest as we move forward. First of all, the Christian life is not one of perfection, but direction. You see, when, if, you're, if your life is walking, walking is directional. You can't walk and not go in a direction. And so it's important to understand that as you're walking, there's a direction. And it's not, it's not perfection, it's direction. It's where are you going? What is your destination? These are the kinds of conversations that need to be 
uh, had on a regular basis with, with, with young people, with people who are uh, planning to get married, with people who have been married for 30 years or 50 years, that there should be some annual conversation or some biannual conversation about direction. Where are we going as a family? Where are we going as a couple? Where are we going? Well, what's the direction? Our lives are moving in a direction. What is that direction? To not stop and have that conversation, in my opinion, would be utterly foolish. You're moving in a direction. What direction are you moving in? Every time we move from one year to the next, I'm always telling you how I'm obsessing about where was I at the beginning of the last year and where am I now? And, and then which direction have I moved? And where have I gone? And what's been accomplished? And Secondly, if you're walking, <clears throat> you're heading somewhere, but you've not arrived. You see, because if you had gotten to the destination, you wouldn't be walking. Right? I mean, this sounds simple, but it's so practical. That it's not just that there's a direction, but that I'm not arrived. We have to continually remind ourselves that we are not where we ultimately are going to be. That the Christian life is not about completion. Listen, there is a completion. But you will not be complete until Christ makes you complete. That the God of peace Himself will sanctify you completely and then you will, we will stand before Him. Because he who called us is faithful. 1 Thessalonians 5. So it's directional. We're reminded that we're not, we haven't arrived. And then, maybe most importantly, it's a process of going one step at a time. You know what walking is not? Think of all the things walking is not. Walking is not skipping. Walking is not hopping. It's not running. It's not sprinting. It's walking. And walking is one step followed by another step followed by another step. It's the way I always explain it to people is it's baby steps. Just think of baby steps. One step at a time. It's it's long obedience in the same direction that yields tremendous lasting change. You're walking. You're not running, hopping, skipping, sprinting. Walking. So as we face decisions every day, we need to be walking in the Spirit before we can expect God to lead us. You see, if we're walking, which we need to be, we're not all walking, and we're not all, you know, let's face it, There are some that are crawling. Maybe some that are limping. And there's certainly some that are standing. We need to be walking. And when we're walking, well now, how are we walking? Not all walking is the same. We want to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. There's two distinct kinds of walking. The Bible says in John 16, remember Jesus said, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. So the Spirit is going to come and He's going to guide us into all truth. He will not speak on His own, but He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. He'll guide you. He won't carry you. He won't force you. He won't thrust you. But He will guide you. So God has a will. As we found out last time, Matt, uh, Pastor Matt broke that down into two, you know, a, a simple way to understand it. A sovereign will and a moral will. But He has a will. And this is the, the important thing for us to understand. God's not hiding His will from you or me. He's not playing hide and seek. He didn't, he didn't kill His Son allow Him to die on a cross uh, to to save a group of people to play hide and seek with Him. 
He wants you and I to know what His will is. Both His, He wants us to know His moral will. Obviously, He's given us everything we could need according to life and godliness. He wants us to trust in His sovereign will. He's not hiding that from us. So therefore, the Spirit comes to guide us. We want to walk in the Spirit. We want to be guided into all truth. I was trying to think about, you know, how do we, how can we understand this? How can we explain this? I remember reading some time ago a, a story about uh, a sound engineer. His name was Elwood Norris. And here's what he did. He invented something called hypersonic sound which is all meaningless except for what it actually is, is he developed a way to convert sound waves or to make sound waves mimic or act like a laser beam. So that, which is completely different than anything we've ever understood about sound before. Because when Rod sits up here and sings or plays the guitar, the sound waves just emulate all out through this room. They just fill this room. But this discovery allows sound to travel in a very concentrated beam. So what he's able to do is he's able to carry a sound from, say, where I'm, I'm standing, he could carry a sound to Miss Adamas back there, and no one else in the room would be able to hear except for her. And if she scooted over just a little bit, she'd no longer be able to hear. The only way you can hear hypersonic sound is if you are directly in line with the, the beam of waves. That's a good way to understand the Spirit. That we're walking in the Spirit and God will, will be guiding us and leading us and, and, and we'll be fellowshipping with Him and and if we step out, and, the, and there may be people around us who, who don't, they don't hear what we hear. They don't know what we know. And if we step out of that line, we don't hear. You see, it's not like everyone around hears. So the point I'm trying to make is that it's a different way of, of communicating. You, don't, you, don't walk, you, you can't walk next to someone walking in the Spirit and just listen off of them. It doesn't work like that. They're the ones who can hear. You only hear when you are walking in the Spirit. And so, how do we do this? What do we, I, I want to I sort of break some of this down. I want to talk about this walking. So here's the first step. Step one would be, we must remember that no one can be walking anywhere unless he or she has taken the first step. You see, walking always begins with a step. If you haven't taken the first step, you're not walking. You're doing something else, but you're not walking. So it begins very intentionally with the first step. Now, there is a very intentional first step that you have to take to walk in the Spirit. And if you don't take this first step, there's no walking in the Spirit. It's completely off the table. So that first step is, should be obvious. The first step in walking in the Spirit is to be born again. So apart from this first step, there will be no walking of this sort. There may be walking, but it will not be in the Spirit. And so there will not be the guidance that we're talking about. Jesus made this abundantly clear in His conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when He said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot. It will not happen. There is no possible way. Remember, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It is written, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for him who, uh, who love him. But God has revealed, He's revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. 
For what man knows the things of God except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit whom is from God, that we might know the things that we have been that have been freely given to us. You see, that we might know these things. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There is nothing I could say to make it any clearer than that. The first step is the first step. There's no, there's no step 1A, 1B. There's no... It is that step and only that step that must be taken first. Now, step two. So the Christian life is walking. It's not standing or sitting because it's a life of motion. You see, I would I have a lot of opinions about this topic that we're talking about in this Crossroads series. I've spent a lot of time thinking about in my own mind, as, as I'm thinking about the things that we're going to talk about and the things that we're going to say, I'm thinking about reasons behind why there are so many people who seem to lack wisdom. Why does wisdom seem so elusive to so many people who seemingly have taken the right first step, but then... It doesn't seem to follow with, I mean, am I alone or do you find yourself at times having conversations with people and they're, they're saying, well, you know, I've decided to do this or I've decided, and you're just cringing inside. I'm just cringing. I'm thinking, in what universe would that be a good idea? That's a horrible idea. It's horrible. Sometimes, I'm thinking the Scripture specifically prohibits that decision. You ought to know that. And I think, in my opinion, that one of the big reasons behind that is because there are a lot of people claiming the name of Christ that aren't moving. They're not moving. They're stagnant. They're not walking. They're sitting. They're standing. They're stationary. And guess what? When you're stationary, it is impossible to walk in the Spirit. That would have been a good place to amen. It's impossible. You cannot walk in the Spirit if you're stationary. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9 about this life that He's called us to. If you desire to come after me, in other words, first thing, have you ever noticed about, I mean, you've all heard this a thousand times, but have you ever noticed Jesus is moving? Do you notice that? He, he's, you know, he's saying, if you want to come after me, meaning I, I'm moving. So if you want to be with me, you got to move because I'm not standing still. See, there's no stationary life with Him. He's moving, so if you want to come after Him, you deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. Right? We're moving. It is a life of motion moving. One of the ways, because you say to yourself, okay, okay, I get that, but how do I know if I'm moving? I want to move. I want to be, I want to be moving. I want to... Break this down. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to move. I don't know if I'm stationary. I don't know. Okay. Well, clue number one would be these two words right here. A moving person is continually embracing these two things. Repentance and confession. 
Repentance is the sure sign of a moving Christian. Because if you're breathing, if you're breathing, you're sinning. That would have been another spot for an amen. If you're breathing, so if you're breathing, you ought to be repenting. And repenting is moving. Moving forward. Repentance is like a spiritual thruster. It's thrusting you forward because repentance in and of itself is motion. Because what is, what is the definition of repentance? It's change. You see, it's impossible to repent and remain the same. That's impossible. That's not repentance. That's feeling sorry. That's worldly sorrow. That's a lot of things, but it's not repentance. Repentance is a thruster, a spiritual thruster forward. And so a person who's embracing repentance and confession as an ongoing part is somebody who has a desire to be led by God. Now just in case, you know, you're hanging out there on the edge somewhere thinking to yourself, well, you know, I, mean, I feel like I'm... I, I'm walk in the Spirit. I have a desire to walk in the Spirit. and you know, But repentance isn't a big part of my, my life. Well, the Scripture says if you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, throughout the Scripture, there are these frightful passages that say things like, God says, I hear the prideful from afar. That, but think about that. There's distance. There's a problem. Clearly, you're not, you're not coming after Him, denying yourself, and following Him. There's not going to be guidance. There's not going to be wisdom. There's not going to be correct direction because there's iniquity. Because you're breathing. So there should be repentance that is thrusting you forward continually. And so there's change. You know, you'd think that, well, how can you do that all your life? I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that get old? No, you, you're underestimating the incredible capacity for the flesh to invent new ways to sin. Then it, it never gets old. It never runs out. There's no... I never, I've never gotten to the end of a season of my life and thought, wow, you know, I really haven't had to repent these days. I mean, that's... Come on. That's, that's not reality. So here's a way I like to... Uh, when, I, when I think about, you know, the seeming uh, elusiveness of wisdom in our day and time, and the fact that it's because people are standing still, is a good way to put it. You can't steer a parked car. I mean, it's like so many Christians are sitting in a car, the car's in park, and they're just pretending to drive it, you know? And when we took our, as a family, we went to Dollywood over uh, Thanksgiving. And so, um, you know, I was having to split my time between uh, riding all the fun rides with my nine-year-old and riding all the not-so-fun rides with my five-year-old. And so I found myself on this, you know, car ride, and she thought it was the greatest thing in the world. She actually thought, you know, she kept saying, I'm driving. I'm, and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, no, you're not. You're not driving. You're just doing this with the wheel and there were pedals and she could press the button and honk the horn and she thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And I'm thinking, sweetheart, if you were driving, I would not be sitting here. But that's what a lot of Christians are doing. They're just playing cars. They're not going anywhere. They're not moving. 
And maybe it's because they're regarding iniquity in their heart. Whether, you know, how aware of such things a person is or not, it's there. So there's the first two steps. And then finally, step three. God's willingness to guide is based on our willingness to obey. Now I know that this seems a little troublesome. In other words, that doesn't just, you know, land on you all nice and fluffy, does it? It sounds a little legalistic or rigid or... But let me put it to you this way. Is God ever going to bless disobedience? No. He's not. He can't. It's against His character and His nature. He won't. So therefore, this whole issue of guidance is directly linked to our willingness to obey. And notice I put the word willingness in there. Because I believe that's the key. I believe the key is willingness. Now here's the two sides of the coin. The first side is that it would be absolute hypocrisy if we were to ask God to help us make a decision when we've already decided what we're going to do. And we have to stop for a moment and just think about this. Because if we're honest, we've all been here. And so with our lips... In our mind, we are asking God to help us with this decision, but what we're really doing is asking God to back our agenda. It's very important to understand that to walk in the Spirit, you cannot have already come to the conclusion of what you're going to do. You can't do that. That is a violation of the whole entire process of walking in the Spirit that I'm going to get to in a few moments. It's hypocrisy. And so the, the danger that we have is that we're, many of us in this room, are people who maybe have strong opinions and feelings about things. And so as we're encountering things in our life, we're we're, we're interacting with, with God about, about what we should do and where should we go and how should we do it and whatever the case may be, whatever circumstances you're going through. And you're making decisions. And I think that there's a lot of people sitting in a parked car who are deceiving themselves into thinking that they're not. Because they're going through the motion of. They're, they're praying and asking God for wisdom with regards to these things that they're doing and these things that they're facing. But in actuality, they've already made the decision. Now, God knows. You can't fool Him. He knows what you're going to think before you think it. He already knows. You're not going to get ahead of Him. So if you've already come to the conclusion of what you're going to do in your heart, and then you're talking to Him about that, now how do you think that's going to go? And yet I think we find ourselves in that, in that predicament more times than most of us are willing to admit. You see, I call it being, I want to I position myself to be blessable. So there's been a lot of times in my life where 
Lisa and I were trying to make a decision with regards to something going on in our life. And we really didn't know what we were going to do or how we were going to do it. And we were trying to sort this out. And I would be careful to, although I'm, I might have an opinion or I might, you know, think that potentially if I had to, you know, make the choice right now, it would probably be this way, but I'd have to guard myself and we'd even have conversations about, you know, making sure that our heart stays open to whatever God has, that we're not we're not just going, we're not just being a hypocrite and going through a formality. Right? And then having a conversation about what is the what is the what is the, the next move that we can take that will make us most blessable? Which is a little theologically shaky because it's not like I'm, you know. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that in my mind and in our conversations, time and time again, we've talked about just saying, is there a baby step we can take that will put us in a better position to be able to receive what it is God wants us to do? Because by the time we get to that point in the conversation, we've already talked through the fact that there's, there's no direct reference in Scripture leading us as to what we need to do about this. Otherwise, we wouldn't even, we'd have already moved forward. But I want to be in a position to receive God's blessing. I want to be blessable. And so sometimes you can take a baby step in a certain direction that puts you in a position to be, you know, it's almost like I'm, I'm, I'm positioning myself more. It's for me. It's not for God. I'm positioning myself so that I am reminded that I am utterly saying, God, I'm open to whatever you want me to do. That I, I really am. That what I desire more than anything, is to know, God, what is it that will bring you the most glory in this situation? And what is not on the table, but is always lurking in the back, is my preferences. Because I always have preferences, and you always have preferences. And there's nothing wrong with having opinions. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. There's not, but there is something wrong with already knowing in your heart what you're probably going to do and then coming to God and asking a question. You know, you're going to get nothing is what you're going to get. Secondly, the other side of that coin is if hypocrisy is one side, rebellion is the other side. Which is to say to God that I will only accept your leading if I approve of the path that you've chosen. That, I mean, that's just outright rebellion because you're putting yourself in a place you were never intended to be. You're making yourself God. You're saying, I'm the one who ultimately, I'm asking you for advice. You know, God doesn't give advice. You know that, right? He doesn't get, he's not in the advice-giving business. When he, when he speaks, it's not advice. He means what he says. It's not, you know, it's not up for debate. You have the freedom to choose how you're going to respond to what he says. But believe me, what's not moving, what's set in stone is the utter truthfulness of what he said, the utter accuracy of where he's leading or how he's guiding. And we will either yield to that or we won't. And so, I want to just talk, now you can stop worrying about what your next blanks are, and I just want to talk to you for a moment about walking in the Spirit. And I want us to be crystal clear when we leave here tonight 
about what I'm talking about, what that looks like, what is it, so that when we come back next week and we start putting the next pieces together, we know exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about walking in the Spirit. And if I had to, you know, I'm a simple person, so I like to simplify things whenever possible. When if I had to simplify walking in the Spirit, if I had to, if I had to whittle it down and I had to say, well, now what is walking in the Spirit in the most simplest terms? It would be submission. What walking in the Spirit is, what the Scripture's talking about, is that we are walking in submission. In other words, that my desire, I am in submission to the will and purpose of God. I'm in submission to the Word of God. I'm in submission to the Spirit of God. I'm in submission to the will of God. I'm in submission to that. I'm not, I'm not putting myself even with it. I'm certainly not elevating myself over it. I'm submitting to God. That is walking in the Spirit. I want to show you a, a, a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 22, here we have the Apostle Paul, Saul at the moment. And it says, Now it happened as I journeyed, I came near Damascus. At about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me, in, <coughs> excuse me, indeed saw the light and were afraid. But they did not hear the voice. You see, it was like laser beam sound waves. They did not hear the voice of him who spoke. Yet they were right there. But they didn't hear, but he heard. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go to Damascus. And there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. Now what you have here is a very interesting picture of walking in the Spirit. Here you have Saul. This murderous, ravenous, educated, religious, authoritative, I mean, all, the, all bundled up into one. He's, he's filled with anger and rage towards uh, Christians and towards Christ followers. And he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the key to really unlocking this whole encounter is the minute that Saul recognizes or identifies whom he is speaking with, what does he do? He submits himself. What do you want me to do? He's saying, when he finds out who he's talking to, it's not, why are you doing this to me? Why have you accosted me? Why have you knocked me to the ground? Why have you chosen me? Think of all the questions that could be, would be perfectly understandable in this situation. And yet, his response is, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? That's the goal, folks. Is to be able to come before God Come before God in your time of, of, of Bible study. Come before God in your time of prayer. Come before, come, come before God as you come to church. As you come to church. I wonder how many people come into church and get their bulletin and open their bulletin. The first thing they do is open their bulletin and they look and they see, you know, what's the sermon title? What's the text? And they, they, they start scheming in their head about what's going to be said or how's it going to go or what are they going to do. or what? But, but what, if we, what if we, before we approached the house of God, we, we already put ourselves in a position, a posture of submission. God, I don't know what you're going to say to me today. I have no idea what you're going to say to me. 
But I want to hear from you. And whatever you say, I want to hear it. I want to know what you want me to know. I want to obey the things you want me to obey. I want to do the things you want me to do. I desire that. Now, do you think that it would change what happened when you walked through the doors and you sat down if you approached it that way? What do you think would happen if instead of, instead of waking up tomorrow morning and sitting in your little comfy chair with your same old coffee cup, plopped down on, you know, and flipping your Bible open on your lap and just knocking out today's daily reading? What if before you open the Bible, before you ever read the first word, what if you said, God, I know where I am in the Bible today. I know what chapter I'm going to read today. I've read it a hundred times before, but God, I want to know what you want me to know about that today. I want you to know before I ever read it that I want to hear from you today. And whatever you want to tell me, if it's from you, I want to hear it. And I want to obey it. I want to do what you want me to do. My highest desire is to do what you want me to do. I want to... Do you think that Paul is the only person who who encounters God in this way? Do you think that this God won't, won't... encounter you as you read your Bible in places you've read a hundred times before, as you go into your prayer closet in the same way you've done a hundred times before, as you walk into church as you have a hundred times before, but with a posture of submission, saying, God, I really want to know what you have for me today. Will you... Will you I just want you to know before we ever get started I'm ready. I want to hear. What a difference that would make. And you see sometimes when we have a conversation like we've been having the last couple of weeks in this series and we're and we start talking a lot about the sovereignty of God, sometimes some people can get a little off track. They can, they can start to become really unwise because they don't really understand what we're talking about. And so this same Paul, the same Paul from Acts 22, writes the book of Romans under the guidance and authority of the Holy Spirit. He writes the most amazing, most wonderful, most unbelievable theological treatise that could ever be imagined. The Apostle Paul is being used by God and in chapter 9 of Romans and chapter 10 of Romans and chapter 11 of Romans, do you know what the Apostle Paul is talking about? He's talking about the sovereignty of God. He's talking about the fact that God is sovereign and He's in control. And he spends three chapters unpacking in the most dense place in Scripture that sovereignty is dealt with. And what does he do at the end of that discussion? How does he... What is, what is the next thing he does as he sort of closes up his conversation about the sovereignty of God? Does he go into this deep depression? Does he go into this lull because, well... God's in control of everything and so nothing really matters because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Does he, does he sort of settle into this, you know, uh, sort of lackadaisical mindset because what's the point of, of, of trying if God's sovereignly in control and going to do it anyway then 
I might as well just sit back and let it go because it's not going to matter anyway. Is that what he does? Well, what does he do? What does this Paul do? The Paul who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. What does he do at the conclusion of Romans chapter 11? The very end of that chapter ends with Paul literally jumping out of his skin for joy. There is a doxology that ends that chapter that is Paul's... I mean, if the Bible could just... When I read it, it's sort of like when you get, when, when you get a text message from somebody who's stuck on cap lock and everything's in capital letters. And you know, you're like, whoa, why are you screaming at me? This would be the place in Scripture that's not only in all caps, but every time you read it, a hand comes out and goes right across the head. It goes, man, I'm so happy I want to slap somebody. Paul's response to the sovereignty of God is, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him? And it shall be repaid to Him for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's how Paul response to the sovereignty of God. Why? Because he understands that a person, to be able to be a person who walks in the Spirit, you have to know who God is. You have to know God's a sovereign God. And when you walk in the Spirit, you are in submission to a God who is sovereign, but He's good. And when you know God's sovereign and you know God's good, it makes your heart want to scream for joy. It makes you so happy and so excited and so ecstatic about the fact that you could know this God. Because this God who's sovereign and good has a plan. He has a plan for this world. And He has a plan for your life individually. And He's sovereign and He's good. And if God has a plan for my life and this world, and He's sovereign and He's good, I can take anything. I mean, I can walk through anything if I know that. Because He has a plan. And He's sovereign. See, He has the authority and power to carry out His plan. And that doesn't make me want to sit back and rest and retreat. That makes me want to press forward. That makes me want to dive in. That makes me want to know and understand. And so here's what Paul's showing us. Is that in understanding that God is sovereign, in understanding that He has a plan for the world and a plan for our lives, that the the clouds begin to part. And he begins to see more clearly what what God's doing around him. You see, when you're walking in the Spirit, when when you're joyfully and willfully submitting to a sovereign good God, you then have access to see things you otherwise would never see. You see, that's when you get to see. You're never going to see in advance God's sovereign will. Isn't that what we said? Never. But you know what you will get to do? You will get to see behind you pieces of why God did the things that He did. You will get to gain bits of understanding about His goodness and His sovereignty in the rearview mirror. You'll get to You'll get the joy of knowing. My goodness. I went through that and I didn't understand that and I didn't know what that was all about, but now I can see God. I can't see fully. I can't see all ultimately what you can see, but I can see little pieces of how you use that for good. How you orchestrated that event to put me in position so that this would happen. Do you know what that does for us? 
The next time our heart breaks, the next time. Don't you see? What, why, are, why are Christ followers who own Bibles and that are written in a language that they speak and read, why are people with access to those things racked with anxiety and fear and fretting all the time and consuming themselves with avoiding pain? Why? When you can look behind you and you can see that every tear that you've shed, every trial that you've gone through, God had a purpose in it. He had a reason in it. He's strengthening you. He's making you who He wants you to be. He's doing things in the midst of what you don't understand. But you can walk in the Spirit because He's trustworthy. That's what walking in the Spirit is. That's how you gain access to make decisions. That honor Him. Submit yourself to God. Change the way that you read the Scripture. Change the way that you pray. Change the way that you come to church. Change the way that you view your circumstances. Stop. Stop with all the doom and gloom. Stop with the woe is me. It's offensive to a sovereign good God. I don't want you to walk around like a weirdo trying to make your bad things seem good. I don't want you to do that. I just want you to, to embrace bad things for what they are. They're bad things that I'm in the middle of facing that I don't understand, but I'm not alone. And the One who's with me is awesome. That's what I want you to know. Let's be those people. Let's see what He does.